So we actually had a very interesting comment a little over a week ago on our subreddit uh, from user... Oh, Mark, what's the name of our subreddit for anyone who might be interested in posting? That? On our subreddit r slash pod by wow. user ba throwaway. That's B-A-A throwaway. This is a question concerning our episode on MMT and theories about money uh, that we did a few weeks back. There's a few different parts to this question. Uh, The first one is, outside of MMT's actual prescription for a better society, there seems to be an ontological dissonance between the MMT and Marxist analysis as to what money actually is, embodiment of state power and sovereignty, which would be MMT, or universal exchange commodity representing value generated by labor, which would be the Marxist view on it. My response to this would be, I think think one of the things you have to consider is that uh, Marx... And then the modern monetary theorists like Bill Mitchell are living in very different times. And that modern monetary theory, that first M really does mean modern. Uh, so when we when we talk about how money is a thing that doesn't really exist, this is a situation that is particular to these very modern economies that run on fiat labor with absolutely no that you know that isn't pegged to anything floating exchange rates all that kind of stuff and so i think we have to consider that they're that they can both be right in their own time periods however uh this question does later talk about marx uh basing his concept of money on the evolution from barter narrative about money which we also discussed in that mmt episode and and which we discussed was incorrect and in that regard, I would say that we should ultimately choose the modern monetary theory viewpoint of this when we're talking about money in a modern fiat economy like the United States or any number of other countries. The second part of this question involves, um, involves the labor theory of value, which is one of the central points to Marxism. We discussed it in episode eight, a brief introduction to Marx. And what the labor theory of value basically means is that when you take stuff from the earth and you combine your labor with it, it will become something that is, or at least has the potential to become something that is more valuable than the stuff you started with. And when it gains that value, it's the labor that does it, Um, which means that the ways in which capitalists make money by owning the means of production, but not actually using them and combining them with labor, but instead getting some of the value from the labor someone else does, that means that that's inherently exploitative and immoral. When Elon Musk's family owns uh, cobalt mines, it's not them who's giving it value, it's the people pulling it out of the earth. Exactly. And so Ba Throwaway uh, asks... I've heard both mainstream and leftist critiques saying that the labor theory of value has been at least partially disproven, but labor theory of value is a foundational tenet of Das Kapital, which is still essentially the Bible of Marxist analysis, and I've yet to really make sense of that dissonance. Um, There are definitely a lot of people out there who say labor theory of value is disproven. I'm not entirely sure how you could factually disprove labor theory of value, because ultimately, when, when we come down to it, this is kind of a a logic. It's it's almost a moral statement more than it is a factual statement. It, it's almost like saying all people are equal is is disproven, or or that or that human rights are a good thing is disproven. Uh, it's ultimately a way of looking at the world that you can choose uh, based on what kind of outcomes you want from your analysis. So I, I don't know that I would say that. Um, 
it's really possible to disprove the labor theory of value, and I definitely find it very valuable still. Is it, this might be an oversimplification, but is, is there argument, and I, I'm just like spitballing here, but is there argument that just because you add something to like raw materials or a product, it doesn't necessarily make it use, more useful or like more valuable to other people and therefore it's not, your labor didn't add to it positively. And it's just like, um, it's it's uh, just dependent, like it varies person to person, whether someone think it actually provided value. Well, here's the thing is that, is that there, 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 are, there are multiple ways to think about the labor theory of value. And I do take what is ultimately the the widest approach that that uh, which is um, maybe a more a more precise, a narrower approach to the labor theory of value is to say that when somebody combines an hour of work with whatever resources and machines and, and, and that, that they use, that this hour of work is worth the same amount as every other hour of work all the time. Um, I don't think this is a particularly popular view, though, honestly. It's, it's, a, bit of a, it's a bit of a right-wing straw man a lot of the time. The way that I choose to interpret the labor theory of value is simply that when we experience the phenomenon, be it a universal phenomenon or just an individual personal one, of a thing that somebody worked on being worth more than the materials were before it was worked on, Whenever we, whenever we experience that, we have to attribute that change to the labor. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all labor is worth the same. It doesn't necessarily mean that um, all labor has to add to the value of things. Sometimes labor can take away from the value of things. Say, if you take a computer and you smash it into a bunch of pieces, that's technically you doing labor, but you're obviously taking value away from that for most people. I feel like leftists will mostly view it as black and white, you know? Uh, like you said, the right wing straw man will be, okay, you have someone who does uh, a five hour triple bypass heart surgery, or um, someone spends five hours filling up tubes of toothpaste, right? They both spend five hours doing doing labor, leftists say that's equally valuable, but they say like, which, like, you know, like, which would you rather have if you could give one up? But at the same time, you need heart surgeries. You need fucking toothpaste. It's it's black and white, at least at least to me. I do think that most leftists would agree that regardless of whether you are a surgeon or a toothpaste filler or any or any other job that is socially necessary, uh, that you deserve to have what you need to survive uh, provided to you by the society that you live in. The final question goes: David Graver's debt debunks the historical barter into currency story as well, but directs his criticism more towards mainstream economists. And I know a lot of MMT people like Graeber, but I don't think he ever wrote on MMT specifically, and I imagine his anarchist leanings might draw him away from the common MMT prescriptions of just leave it to the state to pay for more things. Um, my opinion of this is that is that I think we have to separate what are the prescriptions people who push MMT tend to make and the things that are actually contained within modern monetary theory itself. Modern monetary theory is ultimately a way of thinking about money as it exists today, and it doesn't in and of itself make prescriptions. You could, uh, for example, in some of the writings of Bill Mitchell that we discussed in the episode, he talks about how within, within the frame of 
modern monetary theory, you could justify neoliberal policy. You would just have to be honest about it. You would have to say, oh, it's not that we can't afford universal health care. We just don't want to do it because it's more profitable for capital owners that way. But that still all exists within the framework of modern monetary theory. So I think that ultimately a lot of people who subscribe to monetary modern monetary theory, myself included, don't, uh, as you say in your comment, um, you know, we know this isn't the end-all be-all, uh, which is something that I totally agree with. Um, but I think it helps us not just to advocate for harm reduction policies in the immediate term, but I think it also gives us a stronger understanding of how these large monetary systems work. And that's really important when we want to critique other problematic aspects of the economy, like financialization, the fact that the amount of value that is perceived to be in the economy is increasingly wrapped up in things that don't involve real objects or services that people provide and are wrapped up in things like securities and investments instead. I hope I hope I did a, a, a reasonable job of answering some of those questions, at least giving my opinion on the issues. The only critique I would have is the whole time you said Bill Mitchell, I knew I knew that name from somewhere. And all I could think of was the QAnon grifter on Twitter who um, suggested drinking bleach to, as a way to deal with coronavirus. Wait, he has aggressively white hair and blue eyes. And do I maybe I'm getting his name wrong. No, you're correct. There's just two Bill Mitchells. Let me let me double check. Oh God, this would be so embarrassing. Bill Mitchell, ba, 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 New South Wales. That is the man. Okay, cool. You got it right. Yeah, no, you're good. Don't worry. Welcome to We Read Theory, the podcast where we read theory so you don't have to. I'm Alex. I am Mark. And today we're going to be returning to our roots since this is the first episode we've done. Not the first episode. Um, the first episode we've done now that the podcast is one year old. So we're going to yes. go back to the author of the first episode, Peter Kapotkin. Not talking about anarcho-communism. Excuse me. Anarcho-communism. <laughs> I, i'm so sorry um yes that episode was released on december 6th of 2019 it's now december 12th of 2020 so it's been it's been a little while and um yeah before we before we get this whole thing started we're going to be talking uh more about peter kapotkin as alex said but we just wanted to say a massive huge huge thank you to every single person who has listened to our podcast uh and especially to the people who who uh say nice things about us on twitter and to their friends in real life we really really appreciate that everyone who has left positive reviews on apple podcasts you people you crazy crazy people uh who listen to our show are the ones who make the show possible i i i don't know how long this would have continued to go on just for fun if we didn't feel that there were people out there who had an interest in what it was that we wanted to say yeah also big shout out to those people who 
saw us as like a uh, podcast with like I don't know, like four followers, and we're like, hey, I'm gonna actually give this a shot. I'm gonna yeah. take an hour of time out of my day to listen to the worst audio quality since ham radio. I know to this day talk about something they don't know about. To this day, uh, our epi- the episode that we have with the most listens is still our very first episode, <sighs> also on Peter Kropotkin, uh, which is probably the second worst episode audio quality-wise that we've put out so far, number one being uh, episode seven, Rosa Luxemburg, who, which probably deserves a, a bit of a re-record. But uh, that's for another time. Today, we are talking about Kropotkin's, Kropotkin's other famous book mutual aid a factor of evolution in the evolution of species and in the development of human civilization alike there have been two major currents steering the course these are the principles of mutual struggle and the principle of mutual aid our histories don't give us this full picture though they're filled with depictions of that famous struggle but they're relatively bereft of depictions of mutual aid However, based on his own observations of the natural world and his study of history, Peter Kropotkin argues that it's aid, not struggle, that motivates the progression of human civilization, from tribal nomadism to settled village life to the grand engineering projects of the medieval city. It's struggle between individuals within the species that actually regresses the civilization. This model of history shares a lot of its bones with the Marxist model of historical materialism. Both Kropotkin and Marx posit that the forward progress of history is defined by the interplay between opposing forces. But these models differ in important ways too. Of course, the interplay between mutual struggle and mutual aid doesn't map perfectly onto conflict between classes, but more importantly, there are significant differences in how these two models motivate us to think about our past. And let me give you a couple examples to show you what I mean. From the perspective of historical materialism, you guys may remember that we discussed um, Machiavelli in our episode on Gramsci, and how Gramsci urges us to understand Machiavelli as a man of his time. Italy was made up of very small, feuding, feudal states, uh, And Machiavelli was very much advocating for the creation of a strong, centralized state over all of Italy, with a strong monarch at its its head. And Gramsci argues that this is not Machiavelli being a reactionary. This is actually Machiavelli attempting to push civilization forward towards a level of development in which it is possible to start talking about even greater projects like republicanism or even beyond. Uh, projects that were already underway in countries like France at Machiavelli's time. This is almost the exact opposite of how Kropotkin uh, believes it, and also other anarchists that we've read, like Erico Malatesta, who believe that far from being a necessary step in human evolution and the development of human civilization, the development of strong, centralized, authoritarian states was nothing but a big mistake that we were doing just fine progressing without the imposition of the state on us, Uh, that there have been many organizations throughout human history um, at all points in time that were anti-authoritarian, that made people much freer, and that humanity is capable of progressing just fine in ways like this. And and, and authoritarianism is not a necessary step 
on the way to socialism, we could do it today if we wanted to. Another good example of where this can cause conflict between the anarchist view and the Marxist view, although it should we should bear in mind that this is something that Marx said kind of earlier. He backed off this. He didn't really believe this later in life, which I think was which I think was right on his part. But uh, when the United States invaded Mexico in the 1850s in a colonial expedition, uh, Marx was actually in favor of that colonial act on some level. Not because he thought it was moral or anything like that, but because he thought that that imposition of rule on Mexico was a necessary part of its development towards a, a state where it could then achieve that social revolution and achieve socialism. And Isn't that like a savior complex, though? Yeah, it's, it's horrible. Uh, but, but this is also not something that Marx continued to believe throughout his, throughout his life. So that, that needs to be said. But that is a potential difference in the way that like a purely historical materialist view can differ from this more anarchist view of history. And I just wanted that to um, kind of be one of the things that we think about. But that idea that mutual aid in which members of the same species help each other out is a more important factor in evolution and the development of civilization than interpersonal struggle which is what is often posited as the main driving force of process, progress, especially in our era of capitalist realism where everything is about competition, competition, competition. In Mutual Aid, Kropotkin goes through ascending levels, so to speak, uh, in which he sees mutual aid as a factor in evolution. And the first two chapters are dedicated to mutual aid among animals. Kropotkin was traveling around Siberia and Manchuria, that's far eastern Russia and northern China, not really long after Darwin published his famous book on the origin of species, which is where our general theory of evolution kind of gets its start in the mainstream. And Kropotkin thinks that people have largely massacred Darwin's work, that They've taken it a bit too far. The degree to which struggle between individuals is at the center of evolution. Kropotkin says that this isn't really what he witnessed, and he doesn't really believe that this is even implied by Darwin's work. He was turned on to an idea called mutual aid, kind of the opposite of mutual struggle, by a professor Kessler, uh, who was a biologist in Russia, who was a contemporary of Kropotkin. He argued that it is actually cooperation between members of the same species against what is really the real threat, which are these natural outside threats on your survival. So if you are a gazelle, it's not other gazelles that are your primary problem. It's predators, it's natural scarcity, it's, it's getting water, it's dying of exposure. These are the problems that animals have to deal with. And for the most part, other members of the animal species are friends, not foe. But there are other animals, I guess, that don't like, aren't like, I feel like gazelles are more like, like, for lack of a better word, pack animals. Like I've never like in any nature documentary, I've seen them all together. There are like more like lone ones. What about like, there are animals who travel by themselves, I guess. Those animals definitely exist, but uh, Kropotkin actually argues that animals like that are generally less successful species, um, broadly speaking, than animals that engage in mutual aid. That would be his uh, answer to that. Okay. 
Uh, Kropotkin says, quote, As soon as we study animals, not in laboratories and museums only, but in the forest and the prairie, in the steppe and the mountains, we at once perceive that, though there is an immense amount of warfare and extermination going on amidst various species, and especially amidst various classes of animals, there is, at the same time, as much, or perhaps even more, of mutual support, mutual aid, and mutual defense amidst animals belonging to the same species, or at least, to the same society. Sociability is as much a law of nature as mutual struggle. Unquote. So one of these, one of the best animals that Kropotkin points out, which I, I actually, I actually want to dwell on a little bit, is bees and also ants. And so when we when we observe an ant colony or a beehive, what we see is an incredible amount of cooperation, an, an innate drive amongst these animals to cooperate with each other. I actually studied uh, at university under a an economist um, who his big thing is is applying rules of economics to evolution, which sounds kind of yikesy, but it's really it's it, it's it really wasn't like that. It was it was really interesting. And what he pointed out, which is something really interesting about bees and ants, which is that the way they reproduce is fundamentally different from the way most other animals reproduce because they have this queen system where the queen produces all the offspring for the colony or for the hive. And the way that like fertilization works, when a queen ant, for example, has two worker ants uh, as offspring, those ants share three quarters of their DNA. But a human has has a baby, that baby shares half of their DNA. Uh, so what that means, and your sibling also is someone who shares on average half of your DNA. Or at least, you know, when, when, you, when you're talking about variation within the human species, your sibling is someone who shares half your DNA, whereas your sibling as an ant is someone who shares three quarters. And so what that means is that is that is that that bakes into the DNA of the species an innate greater propensity for cooperation, which I think is really interesting. I, I'm not trying to disprove anything that Kropotkin's saying or anything, because the big thing that 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 my professor in this course emphasized is that is that a trait will get passed down if it tends to protect a number of members of your species such that it is more likely that your genes are passed on by you doing it. Um, and so when it comes to things like self-sacrifice, um, whatever whatever you are giving up in your ability to reproduce, um, you have to pay back in people who share your genes' ability to reproduce. Um, so that means you'd have to save, you'd have to, if you sacrificed yourself for your clan or whatever, you'd have to save at least two people that have 50% of your genes or more that have a lower percentage depending on the degree to which they're related to you. Um, but of course, what this leaves out is that most of the time when we engage in mutual aid, we're not actually committing suicide to do so. We're usually helping ourselves too. So mutual aid is a really, really important factor in, in evolution and, and aspects of mutual aid that don't mean that you get your dick chopped off or, or end up dead, uh, which is most of them, then, then the calculus is even easier to justify. Yeah. It sounds like a really aggressive example of it <laughs> with these aids uh, with the, with the ants i'm not gonna lie to you mark so in order to understand the these people who have massacred darwin we need to understand a guy named malthus malthus is best known for the idea that 
Given enough food to support everyone, human beings will continue to reproduce at an uncontrollable rate, and that it's only our inability to feed everyone that acts as a population control. What this means is that if we let people reproduce too much, then we're going to run out of the ability to feed everyone, and there's going to be a crisis, a Malthusian crisis, as they call it. Malthus is one of the foundational thinkers in what we today would call eco-fascism. I was going to say, wasn't this like aggressively disproven over and over again? Oh, it's incredibly, incredibly disproven. It's not true. Um, And most people generally agree that this isn't true, but it's one of those weird things where even though we agree the thing isn't true, kind of like Hobbes's view of pre-civilized man, the conclusions that we draw from it often remain the same because they're just baked into our institutions. Um, And so this idea that we're going to run out of stuff for everyone, when really, uh, if we distribute things smartly, there's not even a remote problem uh, with us actually producing enough for everyone. We worried about too many people as much as um, we worried about uh, like uh, resource waste. I think we'd be a lot better off. Yeah. Yeah. Waste is waste is really important to talk about. And just like distribution in general. Mm hmm. And, and, you know, as we all know, Malthus famously advocated that we should get rid of all forms of welfare and stuff, because if we let the pores uh, have stuff, they'll reproduce too often, and then we'll all die, because we'll all starve. So you can kind of see where he was going with that. Not a big fan of Malthus. Kropotkin includes a bunch of interesting examples of this kind of mutual aid that we've been talking about this whole time. Quote, The ants combine in nests and nations, they pile up their stores, they rear their cattle, and thus avoid competition, and natural selection picks out of the ants' family the species which know best how to avoid competition, with its unavoidably deleterious consequences. Most of our birds slowly move southwards as the winter comes, or gather in numberless societies and undertake long journeys, and thus avoid competition. Many rodents fall asleep when the time comes that competition should set in, while other rodents store food for the winter and gather in large villages for obtaining the necessary protection when at work. The reindeer, when the lichens are dry in the interior of the continent, migrate towards the sea. Buffaloes cross an immense continent in order to find plenty of food. And the beavers, the beavers, Alex, when they grow numerous on a river, divide into two parties and go, the old ones down the river and the young ones up the river, and avoid competition. And when animals can neither fall asleep, nor migrate, nor lay in stores, nor themselves grow their food like the ants, they do what the titmouse does. And what Wallace has so charmingly described, they resort to new kinds of food, and thus again, avoid competition, unquote. And so what we see there is a lot of examples of, actually, when we talk about fitness for your environment, it's your ability to avoid competing with your fellow species through mutual aid that determines who is successful, not your ability to compete itself. Yeah, I mean, humans, animals are going to take the path of least resistance. That's, I I feel like that's not a um, controversial take on human nature. You know, if people people are going to take the easy way to um, achieve their goals most of the time. Exactly. And, and, And I think it's important to stress that the claim being made is not that it is good to do mutual aid, but that it is a fact that mutual aid is actually the best way to do it if we're talking about having protection, having enough stuff for everyone to live to live their life. It's it's a it's a statement of fact based on 
biological, and we're going to get uh, now into historical, I don't want to say data, but we'll say evidence, or at least theories. Yeah, so you're saying, Malthus, don't worry about there being too many people, we'll always find um, a way to survive somehow. Let's, let's cross that bridge when we come to it, rather than, um, I don't know, deliberately stymieing um, the uh, population growth. Yeah, and specifically, it's that the problem he's identifying isn't even, a, it's not even like an, oh, we can solve it. It's, it's actually not the problem at all. The problem is people like Malthus trying to make poor people die so that there's less, so that we don't need to make as much food um, when it would be better to engage in mutual aid. It would actually be better for everyone in the long run. Hmm. Let them not only eat cake, but everyone eat cake. Exactly. Yes, sir. So the um, the next the next kind of place where uh, Kropotkin goes is that he he brings it around to humans now, and he he's going to stick with humans for the rest of the book. And so the next section is mutual aid among savages. And if you actually go ahead and read this section, I'll, I'll tell you right now. Um, it, by modern standards, it, it's definitely pretty problematic in a lot of ways. He, he, he you know, it's it's he t- he talks about the lower races of humanity. <laughs> oh, like that's worse than I thought. No, no, yeah, like it's 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 not great. Um, he Just also the word savages I thought was 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 pretty yeah, bad, yeah. but then um, but but there is also like a degree of respect that is afforded to these kinds of societies. He talks about. Eskimo societies, he talks about a lot of uh, old historical societies like primitive Semites, Greeks, the prehistoric Romans, early Celts, uh, various uh, kinds of Native Americans. And oh, it's okay. He, he includes white savages too, so it's okay. <laughs> but his basic idea is that when we look at, and, and this is really similar uh, in a lot of ways to what we talked about in Ecology of Freedom, which is where these organic societies, as uh, to use uh, Bookchin's word for it, lived completely off of the concept of mutual aid and avoided competition themselves as much as possible. Quoting Kropotkin, Eskimo life is based on communism. What is obtained by hunting and fishing belongs to the clan, but in several tribes, especially in the West, under the influence of the Danes, private property penetrates into their institutions. However, they have an original means for obviating the, their inconveniences arising from a personal accumulation of wealth, which would soon destroy their tribal unity. When a man has grown rich, he convokes the folk of his clan to a great festival, and, after much eating, distributes among them all his fortune. On the Yukon River, Dalsan Aleonte family, distributing in its way ten guns, ten full fur dresses, two hundred strings of beads, numerous blankets, ten wolf furs, two hundred beavers, and 500 zibelines, and after that took off their festival dresses, gave them away, and, putting on old ragged furs, addressed a few words to their kinsfolk, saying that they are now poorer than any one of them. They have won their friendship, unquote. And so what we see is that this drive to maintain equality, to work mutually with one another, and not to keep anything for oneself beyond uh, what is necessary for your own survival and sharing with the rest, you know, this goes really, really deep, actually, into the culture of these 
quote-unquote savage peoples. And when we're talking about competition, it's generally something that is imposed from without or from above, someone who uh, is using violence. And when we get into barbarians just in just a second, uh, we're going to talk about how the distribution of labor in these village communities that the barbarians built uh, in, in many ways facilitated the creation of those like militaristic states because when you divide up your labor, one of the things, one of the labors is protection. And so if you have a select group of people that is now uh, dealing with protection instead of it being a general rule, now you have a group of people that has the ability to exert their power on the rest of the community and that can have really negative consequences. You can say cop, it's okay. Yeah, well, yeah, li- literally, <laughs> literally, though, uh, exactly. Cops, the military, just the, it's 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 the state. The state is the monopoly on violence, and when you d- divide your labor in such a way, you inherently create not necessarily a monopoly uh, for an individual, but a monopoly for a group of individuals who can form a class. Yeah, I experienced some of that today when I tried to go see the tree at Rockefeller Center, and the cop was like, uh, "You have to wait in this two-hour line," and I was like, "I am oppressed, sir." But I feel like this whole this whole idea can be boiled down to today, you, tomorrow, me. Exactly. Deal, where it's like, hey, um, you know, today, today, um, today you're in this bit of trouble, you know, which kind of sounds like first thing I think of is like, that, that's kind of selfish. Like I'm doing this. I'm like helping you now so you can help me later. But like, it doesn't really get any more selfless than that, you know, and that, that's a whole nother big discussion. But Oh, well, that's but th- but that's really at the core of what this book is saying is that it's actually selfish to engage in mutual aid because that it, it is just it's just the most effective way to do things. And we, we, we in many ways regress ourselves and make our systems less efficient by engaging in all this needless competition with one another. Mm-hmm. The next section that Kropotkin goes to is mutual aid among the barbarians, as we said earlier. The big difference between barbarians and savages is that barbarians are are definitely considered to be of a higher stage of development by Kropotkin, um, which is why they come after them in the book. And the main difference is that what we're talking about are settled societies that are engaging in herdsmanship, that are engaging in agriculture, that have uh, more complex and established systems. You know, Barbarians, when Kropotkin uses the term, are just the people who weren't Rome at the time of the Roman Empire, basically. So your German tribes and and that kind of stuff. Okay. So at the beginning of the section on barbarians, Kropotkin dwells for a little bit on how the way that we tell our history tends to lead us to overestimate how important struggle is between humans is in the progress of human civilization and the reason why we think this is because open up a history book what do you see if not war if not struggle between individuals and this is in, this in part happens because this is the stuff that's 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 more interesting and it also happens because the history is generally written by the people who are winners of these struggles although that's not a universal rule history is not always written by the victor but it's usually by, written by someone who has a stake in the struggle at the very least So there's going to be a general selection bias for this. Quote, As soon as we come to a higher stage of civilization than the savages that he was referring to earlier, and refer to history, which already has something to say about that stage, we're bewildered by the struggles and conflicts which it reveals. The old bonds seem entirely to be broken, 
Stems are seen to fight against stems, tribes against tribes, individuals against individuals, and out of this chaotic contest of hostile forces, mankind issues divided into castes, enslaved to despots, separated into states always ready to wage war against each other. And with this history of mankind in his hands, the pessimist philosopher triumphantly concludes that warfare and oppression are the very essence of human nature, that the warlike and predatory instincts of man can only be restrained with certain limits by a strong authority which enforces peace and thus gives an opportunity to the few and nobler ones to prepare a better life for humanity in times to come. But, of course, this is not the case for much of the history that doesn't bother to get told. The barbarians and their, and their societies, while diverse in many, many ways, were also really similar in ways uh, kind of across the whole way of doing civilization like that, from, you know, the borders of Rome all the way into, like, the Russian steppe. The barbarians, in general, organized themselves into a system called village communities, and Kropotkin describes the universality of the village community as well as its core purpose as a facilitator of mutual aid here. Quote, It's now known, and scarcely contested, that the village community was not a specific feature of the Slavonians, nor even the ancient Teutons, which are various kinds of uh, Germans, basically. It prevailed in England during both the Saxon and Norman times, and partially survived till the last century. It was at the bottom of the social organization of Scotland, Old Ireland, and Old Wales. In France, the communal possession of the communal allotment of arable land by the village folkmote persisted from the first centuries of our era till the times of Turgot, who found the folkmotes too noisy and therefore abolished them. It survived Roman rule in Italy and revived after the fall of the Roman Empire. It was the rule with the Scandinavians, the Slavonians, the Finns, the Kors, and the Leaves. Lives? Leaves? I don't know how any of those are pronounced. <laughs> The village community in India, past and present, Aryan and non-Aryan, is well known through the epoch-making works of Sir Henry Maine. Elphinstone has described it among the Afghans. We also find it in Mongolian Ulus, the Kabyle Thadart, the, the Javanese Dessa, the Malayan Kota and Tofa, and under a variety of names in Abyssinia, the Sudan, in the interior of Africa, with natives of both Americas, and with the small and large tribes of the Pacific archipelagos. In short, we do not know one single human race or one single nation which has not had its period of village communities. This fact alone disposes of the theory according to which the village community in Europe would have been a servile growth. It is anterior to serfdom, and even servile submission was powerless to break it. It was a universal phase of evolution, a natural outcome of the clan organization, with all those stems, at least, which have played or still play some part in history, unquote. And I, I just want to I, I want to point out, because I, I don't know that I've made it sufficiently clear yet, but the atomic unit of, of the mutual aid going on within these village communities was a communal ownership of land, because that's where the food comes from. That's what everybody needs to survive. If one person owns all the land, like you have in a feudal situation, that makes you king or lord. And so competition between peoples was expressly prevented by a communal owning of land. And I don't know that people fully understand this, but the idea that land was owned by any individual, you know, th th this becomes the norm in different parts of the world at different places in history. But I think a lot of people would be shocked 
to realize just how much of the world was not owned by anyone, even 400 years ago, and even 200 years ago, uh, you still had acts of enclosure going on. Large parts of modern-day Mexico uh, were only enclosed and actually turned into privately owned land as opposed to being communally owned by villages and stuff like that, only in the 1800s or so. Would people describe that uh, the, that communally owned land is unsettled, necessarily? Yeah, that's the colonizer language, for sure. Uh... Although, I mean, th- there were certainly large parts of Mexico that were unsettled and were, and were, and were not owned for that reason. But uh, enclosure often, very often, horribly often, takes... What do you mean by enclosure? I'm not familiar. So, oh, I'm sorry. Enclosure is a, is a term that I'm using kind of generally, but it refers specifically to the process of what I'm talking about, taking land that was owned communally, that was worked communally by villages in England, in modern day England, and turning it into privately owned estates that were owned by lords who then had serfs who worked the land and they had to give the lord some portion of what they produced rather than just getting to keep it for themselves because the lord is the one that owns the land. I feel like if you told people that if you didn't, if you made an argument for, I don't know, communism, socialism, or at the very least, um, co-ops, if you framed your argument as saying, yes, this land was communally owned and like work was equally done and products were equally distributed among people and now some douchebag owns all of it and gets to keep 70% of it while 30% is distributed among 99% of the people, people would be a lot more receptive. But everyone's just so steeped in this, in this uh, current system that it's impossible. Exactly, exactly. If you tried to like sell capitalism to people who didn't live under it, even even selling it to a bunch of like medieval serfs, like it's like, all right, well, you're gonna work about three times as many days a year, and you're not gonna have any friends. <laughs> yeah, and then if you if you don't work. And you don't um, give yeah. some of the products of this work to this guy who sits around and does nothing and apparently owns where you live and reside, then uh, a bunch of guys are going to come kick your ass and then kick you and your family out. And yeah, if you have if you have a farming accident and you like need to take a break for like a couple of weeks to recover, uh, you die. Actually, that's too goddamn bad. That's just you know the roll of the fucking dice. You know, <laughs> that's that's just how it would be. Yeah, and, and, and even, 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 and we're not even talking about feudalism here because feudalism is obviously what comes about. Um, you know, once again, it's something that comes about at different times in different places. Obviously, there's, there's a lot of land out there that has been privately owned for a very long time by one person or another throughout the ages. Um, and so feudalism obviously kind of reaches those places a bit sooner. But with enclosure comes this kind of universality to the system. And that's kind of the defining feature of what we consider to be the medieval era, which is kind of that period that links the fall of the Roman Empire to what later becomes the early modern period um, with the rise of the absolute monarchies in like your 15th, 16th century. The feudal system was, of course, a fundamentally servile system. It was, it was defined by competition between individuals, between lords for more and more property. It was defined by a master-slave type relationship between the feudal lords and the serfs who they effectively owned, whose labor they owned at least a part of by default, by owning the land which they were tied to. But there is another side of medieval political life that isn't as often talked about, 
and that is the everyday working of the medieval city. The cities, the way that Kropotkin describes them, functioned in many ways like little municipal social democracies, or even farther than that. Let me talk about two basic aspects of city life. The first is the actual state structure, the actual political structure within the city. This was often straight up democratic, republican in in, in cities during the medieval era. Oftentimes you might have to elect the leader of a city from a particular family, but there was some degree and sometimes a much greater degree than that of republicanism going on in cities like this, which is crazy when you think about it based on what we normally think of the medieval era. But beyond this, what's really, really interesting is that the the mode of production within these cities was dominated by something called guilds. Now, everyone has probably heard the word guilds, medieval guilds, the, the cobbler's guild, but I don't know that we talk about specifically what a guild is all the time. A guild is in many ways like a union, but even more so. It's, it's, it's like a syndicate to a degree in that it's like a union that also owns the factory. If you live in a city, you know, and you're a blacksmith, I don't know, you would have to be a part of the blacksmith's guild. So you couldn't legally do, you couldn't legally smith like, like, um, let me see, like a sword or something like that um, without their permission or something? Like what benefits did you have to joining this guild? Well, so so what the guild does is, is yeah, you have to be a part of the guild to take place in a particular trade um, in the city. But there are benefits to the guild. So if you didn't join, would there just not be these benefits, or would it be enforced by a different party? Or I don't think themselves? I don't think you would really be able to practice the trade at all if you weren't a part of the guild. Um, and and what just the get guild shit beat out of you. What the guild does is that it, is that it maintains a culture of mutual aid in the craft. Uh, quoting Kropotkin, as to the social characters of the medieval guild, any guild statute will illustrate them. Taking, for instance, the Skraw of some early Danish guild, we read in it first a statement of the general brotherly feelings which must reign in the guild. Next come the regulations relative to self-jurisdiction in cases of quarrels arising between two brothers or a brother and a stranger, and then the social duties of the brethren are enumerated. If a brother's house is burned, or he's lost his ship, or has suffered on a pilgrim's voyage, all the brethren must come to his aid. If a brother falls dangerously ill, two brethren must keep watch by his bed till he is out of danger, and if he dies, the brethren must bury him, a great affair in those times of pestilences, and follow him to the church and the grave. After his death, they must provide for his children, if necessary. Very often, the widow becomes a sister to the guild. Unquote. This sounds a lot like the mafia. I'm not going to lie. A lot like the mafia? I mean, to the degree that the mafia... Um... Takes care of, like, the family. Well, yeah, but taking care of the family is also a broadly good thing. <laughs> okay, no, I'm just, I'm just saying, like, as someone who just like recently watched all the seasons of The Sopranos, like, even if, even if, um, someone is, um, you know, like, like betrays the, the, um, the family or the guild in this case, they're still going to take care of their wife and kids long after they're gone. Yeah, exactly. And these kinds of support networks far from being just a thing that some people were a part of, they were 
the bedrock of the whole city society. Everyone was involved with one or some intersection of multiple support networks that helped to maintain their ability to live in times of hardship. There was rarely any kind of wage work in cities like this whatsoever, and to the degree that it did occur, uh, Kropotkin argues that these people were generally better paid relative to, you know, the kind of level of social development than people who work similar jobs are today. And another thing that would often happen is that the state structure of these cities would often buy at a non-profit price. It, it would have like kind of the first round um, of ability to buy goods that were produced, which it used to ensure that everyone got the food they needed, that everyone had a place to live. And so we, we kind of see this very well, anarchist, really, way of doing things that's very horizontally organized with people being a part of guilds. There's a lot of self-jurisdiction by the guild over their production, but, you know, it's not the state telling them what to do, although, you know, obviously there is a lot of the state, like, buying things. So you're saying that um, there's a lot of self-jurisdiction happening. Um, there's buying at certain prices. Um, there's, there's, there's these, um, movements and for lack of a better word, like, like business moves made by this guild. Is there any, um, like leadership within the guild, like rotated or not? Is everyone literally at the same level? There's no governing body to this guild that'll advocate or otherwise determine the direction. Yeah. Generally speaking with a guild, you're looking at three basic levels of guild brother, uh, or guild member which is you have your apprentices, which are kind of like the pond scum. They're the, they're the new people. They're, they're still learning the trade. You have journeymen who are very established uh, members of the trade who are free to practice the trade. And then there are the masters, which are the people who've been at it for a really, really long time. So there's definitely a degree of deference to these masters, but it's not like a company where there's a dude in charge. There is a, the, the, the guild is run on principles of mutual aid and mutual support amongst its various members. And what I really, really, really want to stress, and what Kropotkin really wants to stress, is that there's this general idea that when we focus on giving, and when we try to eliminate competition, and we try to eliminate struggle, and we try to make sure everyone is guaranteed what they need to the best of our ability, there's this general idea amongst people that's like, well, that'll be nice, but what about progress? You know, isn't struggle the thing that builds progress? Aren't emperors the people who build, you know, great buildings and statues and monuments and stuff like that? Isn't that how humanity does great things? And what Kapokin has to say to that is, these are the cities where all the great cathedrals of medieval Europe were built. These giant buildings that were feats of, for the time, very modern engineering. And in many ways, the work done in these cities was a progressive force for the development of human society. And we should uh, be mindful of that. So what it sounds like is, one, all, all those words you use, like master, journeyman, apprentice. If this is a video game, one, I'd play it. Two, what, what you're saying, it sounds like they don't elect someone because they're not trying to um, move in one direction or the other. They have these principles of mutual aid that they adhere to and that's what drives them more than anything so as long as like they're tacking toward they don't they don't adhere around a certain person or a certain person's 
um, ideas of what should happen next. They just adhere to these axioms. Yeah, exactly. And what and what makes that possible is that the people in the guild, at least a lot of them, are people that you know, and the people that you're making the stuff you're making, that you're blacksmithing, that you're baking, that you're making shoes for, are also people that you know, that you have a direct connection with, that you share a community with in ways that isn't true when you when you get a pencil and the, the rubber is taken from Indonesia and the graphite is taken from fucking, I don't know where they make graphite, and the, and the, 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 the tree that they used to make it is cut down in Western Canada. And, and it's assembled by someone who doesn't know any of those three people. It's a lot harder to oppress someone right down the road from you. Exactly. And what this means is that, like, like what you're talking about, you don't need that strong authority. You can use general social preferences, social tendencies to regulate behavior like this. Let me read you a charter from 1188 to the Burgesses of Ayr by Philip, Count of Flanders. So this is a city charter, basically like a city constitution, so to speak. Quote, all those who belong to the friendship of the town have promised and confirmed by faith and oath that they will aid each other as brethren in whatever is useful and honest, that if one commits against one another in offense, in words or in deeds, the one who has suffered there will not take revenge, either himself or his people. He will lodge a complaint, and the offender will make good for his offense, according to what will be pronounced by twelve elected judges acting as arbiters. And if the offender or the offended after having been warned thrice, does not submit to the decision of the arbiters, he will be excluded from the friendship as a wicked man and a perjurer. So we see a couple of interesting anarchist ideas going on there. The first is, I, I want to draw attention your, your attention to, is when he says, whatever is useful and honest. Does that sound like legalese that we use today? Oh, whatever sounds right. Whatever seems like the right thing to do. We can't use terms like this because our social ties are not built around our communities. It's not our, our responsibilities are not to the people that we we know directly and that we form relationships with. When this is how your society is built, you can use terms like bake the bread rightly or with justice. And people can make sense of that when you're talking about people who know each other that you can't in a way when you're talking about people who are alienated from each other. Another anarchist idea that's going on here that I think is really interesting is the degree to which they really, really want to uh, stop people from getting into feuds with each other and engaging in that kind of competition that we're trying to avoid. But they're not sending people to prison. They're not punishing people. They are excluded from the friendship. So... They simply don't have the right to what the communal structures produce and what they provide if you can't get along with the community. And this is kind of how the community self-regulates rather than through a disciplinary system, which is another interesting anarchist idea that's going on there. I just wanted to point out. A am I painting kind of a clear picture for you? Yeah, I'm not sure. You, you said it was like um, useful and honest was like an anarchist idea, but like I feel like that can be absolutely open to interpretation. Like I feel honest can go in two ways. One, honest can be fair. Fair as in two people played the game of capitalism, one lost, one won. Therefore, the person who won has the right to, I, I guess, be the victor and the, to the victor go the spoils in the game of capitalism. And therefore, it's honest, it's, it's fair, and he deserves it. And then there's honest as in moral. 
and moral would be uh, this whole mutual aid argument we've talked about. So I'm 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 just not sure which one which one uh, he means here. Well, that ambiguity is something that we can't really do the way that we do state power nowadays, where we have these really centralized states that are overseeing a ton of people who generally don't know each other. But like, let's stop thinking in terms of a state. Let's take your Let's take a community that you were a part of or still are a part of in, in which you have a relationship with basically everyone that's in it. Let's take your frat. If you had like a rule. No, 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 no. But I'm, I'm being serious. Like, like you could have a rule in your house that's, you know, don't be a dick. Is that a precise? <laughs> is that precise wording? Is that is that is that a good is that good wording for a legal document? No, but it works for communities that are that are actually communal where people have relationships with each other because you get the full meaning of the word by understanding the word along with your understanding of the other people yeah we have our own like little colloquialisms and um i guess like understandings between each other so we all because we all know each other is the big it is the big like um the big step you have to take because we're all um constantly interacting and um our actions affect others because we're in a house of 10 dudes with paper thin walls, you know, don't be a dick is don't fuck <laughs> super loud. Don't play uh six, nine at 3am, you know, but yeah, no, I, 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 I see what you're saying. When you, when you know each other, it's like, you know what? Don't be a dick means, you know? Yeah. Reading about these, these, medieval villages is really really cool it's like wow like i didn't even realize this the history of human freedom is so much more vibrant than 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 i than i thought and it's really sad kind of coming to the end of the section on the medieval city and kapotkin talks about what ultimately led to their downfall and they're basically subsumed by the strong centralized states that begin to pop up kind of modeling themselves off of rome um, and having having really large military centralized economies, stuff like that, um, and 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 defined by absolute monarchies, so very not anarchist. And really, the big thing that led to the downfall of these cities, which which struggled against being taken over by these larger states that really struggled uh, violently often to maintain their freedom amongst this sea of private ownership, this sea of feudalism that was surrounding them. But what ultimately led to their downfall was twofold, and they both have to do with lacking solidarity with the serfs. On its face, lacking solidarity with who are basically the oppressed class of the feudal era means that there is a limit to the degree to which you can actually struggle against the feudal structure that is trying to impose its will on you. And beyond that, The serfs in particular are your agricultural workers. So when you're alienated from the serfdom, you're alienated from food, which puts you in a position where where you now have to go through those very same people, those lords, who you are struggling against to get the things that you need to survive. Uh, Whereas whereas by kind of forming a more direct solidarity-based relationship with the serfdom themselves, Perhaps these cities, perhaps the workers of these cities would have been able to maintain their means of survival 
by helping to create surrounding communities of serfs that were of people who were agricultural workers but who were not serfs who were not tied to the land who were not basically owned by a lord and who got to organize their lives along the lines of mutual aid of solidarity and basically uh create their own you know guilds i suppose in a perfect world yeah exactly it's it's it it is a little bit of a of a tragedy and so where does all this lead us to well it doesn't lead us to the present because kropotkin died like a hundred years ago kropotkin does spend the last couple of chapters talking about various aspects of mutual aid as it goes on today or at least in his time and kropotkin's time there was a lot of communal lands and forests that were that were worked and maintained uh even while he was still alive but yeah i mean i mean it's it's getting a little bit long and and frankly this is the least interesting chapter i find but the the main point is that this inherent uh, this inherent drive for people especially people who don't independently have a lot of their own power on an individual level especially over others the natural drive towards mutual aid is very strong we know uh, those of you who listen to Behind the Bastards uh, may be familiar with one of their more recent episodes on Elite Panic. Uh, and, and he talks about um, an example from the Bay Area in California in which there was this giant earthquake that destroyed a lot of the city of San Diego. Not San Diego, San Francisco. And two things happened. The people of the city joined together, engaged in mutual aid, helped each other, fed each other, went into the ruins to find people who were still buried under the rubble and save them if possible. They clothed each other. And where a lot of the harm came from was in the state's response, who, when they saw this happening, assumed that there was going to be chaos when there clearly wasn't, and imposed order violently back on the people. And this is where we started getting rationing, where we started having people who couldn't have coats because... The coats that were found in the rubble of the city were technically owned by someone else and, and this kind of stuff. It's the same shit that we saw after Hurricane Katrina, where people were, quote unquote, looting, you know, food from stores that had feet of water in them, you know. Um, and when we talk about so much of the harm that was done to the people of New Orleans in in the response to Katrina, so much of it comes from A, um, kind of your middle, upper middle class chuds in the area going out and protecting property who ended up shooting a hell of a lot of people, more people than we really know about for sure, because it, it was kind of a black hole. Not to mention the actual like people roaming around in their Toyota Tacomas talking about, um, I, I'm going to paraphrase, but like talking about, okay, we're going to take advantage of this chaos and go kill black people. Re- recorded evidence of that which which is of course like the the underlying the underlying motivation that we can ascribe to a lot of these people but but of course the surface level motivation is is protecting property and then the media showing them going into these stores with like you said three feet of water and going to get fucking food because there's no way else to get fucking food you can't go there you're gonna leave like cash in the flooded register are you fucking stupid so much of the rescue efforts that were going on in the city were done spontaneously by people who were a part of that community just looking out for each other, uh, while the actual national response was was dragged and was really, really slow, in part because of this general assumption that people inherently struggle, um, an assumption that is proven wrong time and time and time again, 
And to the extent that it is proven right, it's generally a self-fulfilling prophecy because it's the people who predict the struggle that ultimately end up creating it. Yeah, there's people there's people in fishing boats that are doing a million times more good than George W. Bush ever did. <laughs> uh, you can say a lot of things about Kanye West, but when Kanye said George Bush doesn't care about black people, you know, that was an Fallen act of so heroism. far. That was based, and uh, yeah, he's he's fallen far. It's very, it's very. It's the only one of the very few good things Kanye's ever done. The only other thing was releasing graduation. Then everything else, fuck it. I don't have the knowledge to tell you why that's wrong, but I know it's wrong. We we can debate that on a much longer episode or stream or something. Wait, speaking of stream, we we did um our first Twitch stream actually with um. It was a bit of a stealth stream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We we didn't um. We, I, Personally, like I've never been on a Twitch stream before, so I don't know how it's gonna go. I was a little nervous, but um, it was super fun. It was just like one of these episodes doing with like like three times the people. Like it was just um, all of us like chatting, chilling, having fun. Um, we went on a, a streamer called Lotus Productions. Um, if you would like to tune into one of their Twitch streams, follow them. Uh, it's yeah. It was a lot. Of, it was a lot of fun. There, good good group of guys with um, a very diverse group of ideas. Uh, it was I think a really productive discussion. If we end up going on that stream again, we will we will let we will let everybody know uh, beforehand, uh, so that you can actually tune in time of. Now that we know it's not a complete disaster. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was worried about. I was like, yeah. is this, am I am I gonna like fall on my face like streaming to these? Uh, I don't know, 16 people. I kind of want to just wrap us up with a little bit of a nice bow before we go to the rest of the plugs. Uh, The thing I want to leave you with, and I hope I've made this picture clear, which is that when we look throughout all of history, what we see is that the vast majority of people are trying to live their lives, trying to get what they need to survive. And when when they reach that goal, most people... Their instinct is to help the people around them be okay and survive too. That is what most people are like. That's how most people have acted throughout all of history. That's society has been built for millennia on the assumption that this is how people are going to choose to act when the time comes. And when we talk about this natural state of humans being in competition, of mutual struggle being the law of evolution... We are giving humanity a worse rap than it actually deserves in a lot of ways. I've said, I've said a lot of times that, maybe not on the podcast, but I've certainly said it in my personal life many times, that misanthropy, the general hatred of human beings, is the soul of authoritarianism. It's only when you come to love other human beings, when you come to, and even deeper than that, just Recognize that regardless of how you feel about them, that they deserve the things they need to survive, that they deserve mutual support when they are in need. When you see humans in that way, that's when we can start talking about giving people freedom because we can trust people to use it. If we can't trust people to use freedom, uh, you know, to to engage in mutual aid and to help each other, then I don't know what the point of being an anarchist. Like, why would you even be an anarchist if you, if you don't actually think people are worthy of having freedom? So I, I think... What I, I, what I loved about uh, reading Mutual Aid, it really blew my mind in a lot of ways, was how much it made me feel justified in feeling that way. How much it made me feel not just that mutual aid as a default way of 
running a society is not only a thing that we is theoretically possible, but is the reality of so much of human history. We don't even have to dream. I think the only part that breaks down is, and I don't want to open up another discussion about this because we've already gone way over time, but <laughs> the only part that breaks down is that um, the peers of the hyper-wealthy are other ultra-wealthy people. And that will definitely ab- absolutely contort their view of what uh, the average person is like and what the average person suffers and has to go through. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to differentiate between having a lot of stuff and being wealthy because having a lot of stuff is one thing. But when you're wealthy, and, and, and by that I mean when you own property, when your money makes more money, when you, when you have property, and, and, and especially this particular um, situation is one in which the well-being of others is now artificially made to, be, to, to pit against your well-being and your wealth. Um, and that's really, really dangerous. We don't want that. We want to create systems in which people's best option is to work together. Yes. And speaking of working together, uh, you can work together with us and help us out <laughs> by listening to our podcast as you're doing right now. Congratulations. You are already fucking awesome and you are doing so much to help this podcast and to help the whole world because of that. Pat yourself on the back. You've done a great job. You want to go above and beyond? You want to be really, really special? We don't even have a fucking Patreon. Just subscribe to us on Twitter, at WeReadTheoryPod. You can go on our subreddit, r slash WeReadTheoryPod, and say nice or mean things about the podcast. We get a mix, honestly. Um, we are here to say posting is praxis, but only on our subreddit. Only on our that, subreddit. It's very, very limited. Any other subreddit, counter-revolutionary activity, we don't want it. Yeah. You want to ask a question on Ask Reddit? Fuck you, Lib. Post on our subreddit. That's it. Please continue to leave us positive reviews on Apple Music. That shit is awesome. It makes me happy. Yeah, we've received a couple that I, I forgot to mention. I saw a couple of days ago, forgot to mention it. Um, if you left a review on Apple Podcast, I think some dude named Nick left a like, really lengthy review on it. I was like, wow, this dude's really nice. I really appreciate it. We've gotten the, it's all five-star reviews. Thank you. I appreciate it. If you've gone, like, taking the time to do that, you're awesome. Thank you. It don't matter what you were assigned at birth. It doesn't matter what your gender identity is today. It uh, doesn't matter who you are. You left us a nice review. You got a big dick. Yeah, we got himbos, bimbos, and thembos all giving us five-star reviews. Please join them. <laughs> all right. This is fucking <laughs> stupid. <laughs> you want to play us out? Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, we love you. We appreciate your you lending us your ear. Uh, And if we don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.